Welcome to Rogue Bogues Basketball Series Episode 4 Me and the big fella Pro, how you going man? Not bad. I, I prefer wide fella. I'm very sensitive to that. So the wide fella, because you know, big fella could be like six nine. We definitely know that I'm like five three, four hundred and eighty pounds. So I'd, I'd like my people like to be called wide. Actually, body positive movement, baby. Come on. <laughs> hey, what are you gonna do? That's my movement. <laughs> That's it. That's it, man. What a week. Uh, we have a lot to get through. So. No bullshit small talk. Let's let's rock and roll. I have some breaking news, which you'll find very interesting. I, I had some people reach out to me when we spoke about a couple of weeks ago about the protocols the NBA have in place for COVID and how I thought it was a little bit smoke and mirrors, the social distancing on the bench, the masks and whatever. But anyway, we've got to a point where half of Philly's team has been depleted by COVID. It's reared its ugly head within the league again. I think Tatum just got announced that he's got it. Now they're looking at close contacts of, of his, which I assume would be anyone he played against. But I had someone reach out to me um, who shall re- remain anonymous. I have found out that NBA teams traveling on the road Going into hotel rooms, it's strict lockdown. They, they've locked down floors and whatnot, and they're trying to isolate guys. They can actually have, pro, two guests come to their room per road trip that are friends, quote, unquote. Get the fuck out of here. How do you think that's going down? Not very well. Yeah. They got two. F- they can invite two friends. They got to get tested though, right? No. So here we go. Get so, the fuck. Yeah. So here we go. I've got. I've go got, the, got the official internal memo. Health and safety protocols. Travel and accommodations. It's labeled dot point K number two. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll I'll read the last sentence. Party may be visited in the individual hotel rooms by up to two guests, e.g. family members or long-time close personal friends who reside in the city where the team is playing. Now, so I, I got that information, so I reached out to a few people to find out exactly if that's true. It's been confirmed. It is true. It has also been confirmed. My next question was yours. Are they, you know, how are you, how are you testing those people? Are they, do they have to be in a bubble beforehand? Nope. They just come straight in. Now, we know NBA players like to, to have some fun off the court. And I can guarantee you that uh, the friends extend to certain people sending DMs to them on Instagram and whatnot, which is, it is what it is. But that goes to my point, Pro, that I made a couple of weeks ago. I think a lot of this is smoke and mirrors. You now have the Philly, Philadelphia 76ers having almost couldn't play a game because they didn't have enough players in their roster. When I read this, I was was alarmed. Um, I think it's, you know, it's just a, a, a... bit in the face to all the protocols that they're putting out there for us to see when you can just basically bring, you know, who determines a friend? What's a friend? Um, you know, can it be a girl off the street that you just met as you were going to your hotel room and one of those girls has COVID that you're having uh, having a coffee with in your room, you know, then it's it's on for young and old. Yeah, I mean, what w- I mean, you know this way more than I do, but come on, the road's a joke, right? Like you're there and now maybe with new protocols and things, you're there an extra night, but you're there literally one night. You have a What's well, more a now? Pandemic because that, it's usually the home and home. Yeah. So it's usually the, the, each team will now play whoever they're playing two nights. So you might be there three or four right. nights. Yep. Yep. Go ahead. Right. It, it, look, it's a little bit of an inconvenience. I get it, but it's hot enough not being in a bubble and these guys going home to their families and having a chance to catch it in their hometowns. I can I understand that. You're in your hometown, things happen, you got kids in school, but now you're on the road. I mean, you can deal with three or four days with not having anybody in your room just because you don't know what those people are doing. See, I don't trust anybody. Like if someone says, "Hey, look, masks, social, you know, social distancing, great." I would do it down to the T. 
but you you know that other people are like, no, I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want to do. And it puts everybody at risk. I mean, you put out this huge memo in the beginning, here's all our protocols. And to have something like this where you don't have to test them, if that's accurate and you don't have to test them, it's it, it just opens it up for them. This is why, like now you're seeing all these people getting, you know, getting infected. I mean, that's why, I mean, it's got to trace back to this most likely. Obviously, we don't know where they caught it, but and to have people that you don't have to test in your room, it's just, it's it's a powder keg that's just going to blow up in your face. And look what they're doing now. You almost had to cancel the game, you know, for Philly today. I mean, you've got the Celtics that are infected. Mavericks just had three people that they had to, um, that they had to put in the protocol. It's, uh, it's pretty ugly, right? It's getting, it, and it's going to get worse. And it's going to get worse. It is. And, and that's that's what's alarming to me. I think your point on are these people being tested? I don't think they can be because the tests usually take a day or two anyway to come back. So if you're visiting someone in, in a city, I think the, the obvious thing is as much and as hard as it would be for NBA players is you just can't, like you said, it's three or four days in that city. The whole world's eating a shit sandwich right now with COVID. Everyone's, people losing jobs, restaurants are shutting, people's, you know, paychecks are gone. I mean, this is just one of the things that we have to kind of give up, but I can't, I called it, man. I'm, I'm calling myself Nostrobogus. I mean, I called this three or four weeks ago because I know, I know the MO of NBA players. I've been around that league for 15 years. Players generally, 90% of them don't like their own company. And, and struggle to sit in a room by themselves. It's just, this isn't a knock on anyone. It's fact. And, and you, you can attest to it. I mean, guys have their routines. They like seeing, going out, going to a certain club, going to a bar, seeing a certain girl, seeing a certain cousin or family member on the, on, on the road. And, and you just can't stop hum, human nature. No, I was seeing a certain mini fridge on the road, in, you know, the, in the mini bar, and you know, spending ninety eight dollars <laughs> the hard way. But I understand. I understand. Right, you're right. Like most NBA players are going to go out somewhere. They're going to go out with teammates. They're going to go out with their families. They're going to go out with their families and you know, their wives or girlfriends or both. It, it doesn't. You know, they're going to see someone. And to have two people that don't have to get tested, it just opens it up. I mean, you can definitely deal. I mean, look. We're, you know, everybody in the NBA is getting paid pretty good money from the staff guys to the coaches to the players. And if you just have to hold the line by saying, okay, when you're on the road, no, you know, you're just going to be in your room and you're going to play games. And hey, look, that's the way it has to be. I mean, look at the bubble, how well it worked. They were, they, they were ironclad on everything they had to do. You know, you had to get tested, masks, you know, visitors were later and it worked. And you can't tell me that people you're going to invite, and especially if it's someone that's DMing you to meet you for the night, like you don't know where they've been. And it just sets you up to sets you up for bad things. And again, we're like three weeks into the season, three and a half weeks into yeah. the season. And we've already having a, you know, three or four big blow ups with this thing. It's, it's, I, I would say just do the bubble, but like this rule definitely, it doesn't have much common sense to me if, you know, if in fact that's what's going on. Well, it is. I mean, I've got it in front of me in writing. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's it's concrete. I've had, I you know, I'm not silly enough not to reach out to a few players playing in the league to get confirmation. They confirmed one one player that I spoke to was pissed about it because he's like, so I'm doing everything right. I'm quarantining. I'm trying to keep my family away from COVID. And then I have a teammate that happens to meet a girl on Instagram or a random and, and they have COVID, bring it to him and then I'm sitting next to him in the locker room or on the bench and then I get it. Like, what the hell's going on? And, and he's got more than a point. Um, but I, I definitely confirm that this was 
confirmed it not only from someone in in the front office but also from from a player. So I'd be on, I'd be on record to say I'm 100 percent certain this is true. The only buddy, the only one that was DMing me on the road was my you know was my pizza delivery guy. By the way, <laughs> just so yeah, it's just crazy. Like you said, like he said, right? You're trying to do everything right, and I'm sure there are players that are trying to do everything right. Probably players around the league that are not seeing anybody in the road. So you know what? I don't even want to risk this. I don't want to risk this for my team. I don't want to risk this for the league. I don't want to risk this for my family. And then you have players, some players and staff that probably don't give a fuck. And it'll be like, you know what? I'm going to do what I do. And it is what it is. And it just puts everybody at risk. This rule, you know, I don't know which one of your informants. Is this like the Departed movie when you have these like CIs? You have, you have what's funny about it, bro, What's funny about it, man, is I don't. I'm not looking for this shit, and I guess that's what yeah. we want. We want the rogue bogues. Is I've got the balls to break this kind of stuff. I don't. I, I have no problem talking about it. I get blacklisted. I get blacklisted. I have no issue with it. But people are sending me this, like, hey, you might find this yeah. interesting. This is some bullshit. I heard you talking about the social distancing on the bench and all that. But check this out, and. It's like, you know, I got to run with it, obviously, and put it out there because I think it's it's important breaking news. The other thing is there has to be people out there in the media that know about this and, and the NBA crony media, no one's, no one's broken this. It's just, it's a huge story. If you're talking about, like I said, if you weren't going so gung-ho on the appearance of socially distanced bench, they just put in the mask mandates for bench players, the water coolers that are all for an individual player. If you weren't trying to put that in our face so much, I'd be like, look, mistakes happen. But the fact that you're trying to really implement that you're doing everything you can, you're not. <laughs> you're not. Like, I mean, yeah. the worst thing you can do is have two people from outside your travel bubble come into that bubble because common sense says one of them's got the sniffles or COVID, your, your whole team's going to get it within a day. Yeah. You know, private jets, charter jets, bench, locker room, training room touching the ball. You can wear as many masks as you want. Guys take their mouth guards out when they get checked out of games. Like you can do whatever you can to prevent it. Like you said, they're trying to do the, the max, but then that, that two people thing that basically shits on all your other protocols. I would definitely shut that down. I mean, look, I understand that people want to be social on the road. Maybe they want to see family and it's not just a woman of the night thing, but it's, it's got to be. That, bro. Let's be serious. Highly doubt that. Yeah, let's be serious. I'm a nice guy sometimes. But like, I know some people are trying to do the right thing, but it's just not, you just can't trust that element if you're not testing these people. Like it just, it just makes no sense to me. If you're really like, if you're, you have buses now, I guess buses only have 12 to 15 people on them, you know, going to and from the arena. They've got, you know, they're, they're spacing out the benches. They've got all this distancing, all this testing. And why are you going to open it up to, you know, people on the road they can see you that don't have to be tested and you just don't know where they've been and it's just to me it's too much of a liability and as you see and the numbers go up and spike in a little bit and it's just three weeks into the season it's a it's a tough deal yeah it is anyway we'll see where that goes i'm sure this will get some some attention and have some people talking but we'll move on to another big bit of news from last week becky hammond first woman quote unquote to to coach in the nba so yeah, that was that was really big news. I believe Becky is not the head assistant who generally in NBA circles when your head coach gets ejected, the head assistant takes over. Um, Becky's not the, the head assistant, but is I believe Pop does things differently there. He lets whoever scouted a particular game, if he happens to get thrown out, they take over as, as head coach for the night. Look, I think my opinion on this is kind of in the middle to an extent. I think over-celebrating things like this aren't that good for the women's movement as far as getting a woman in the 
in the NBA circles to coach a team. I think it's it's a it's definitely a, a good thing to talk about, but over celebrating it to me, it reeks a little bit of tokenism to an extent. I, I think it's good, but I don't I just don't see it as something that we should be over celebrating when there's so many fantastic female athletes in both the, the WNBA, the WNBL here in Australia, all around the world doing fantastic things. I think that should get almost more attention than than something that as simple as okay, a coach got thrown out and it's a massive deal. I think we talk about it quickly, but I felt like it was over celebrated to an extent what do you think well she's done so much for the women's movement you know she's she's works into a male dominated sport that she's one of the first you know one of the trailblazers one of the first women to work and when she got to the league no question it was a big deal and, and it should be celebrated right uh she won summer league i forgot if it was a first year or second year in the league she won summer league which is a big deal first woman to do that and they celebrated that i, I think that's great she got promoted to the front of the bench I think that's something that's the first time that happened. Again, that that's I'm not a big hey, celebrate every little thing, but those are things that I think were big to celebrate. My thing now is with this, is like like you said, you know, she Pop gets thrown out, he literally has to pick the person who's gonna coach. That to me isn't a huge accomplishment because he you're just doing your job like any other coach would. She's going to be a head coach in this league. It's just a matter of when. I, I would say in the next three years or before, you're going to probably see her get hired uh, on, you know, hired as a head coach somewhere. And I think, or, you know, that's as ob- obviously has to be celebrated. If Pop does what Don Nelson did to Avery Johnson when he was, you know, getting Avery to become a head coach and takes a night off and says, hey, you're going to coach this game from tip to buzzer. You could celebrate that even though it's not her jo- her head job, it's not her team, but that's a whole game she got ready for. She had a coach four quarters. You know, that's that's something that you could probably put in that, you know, that segment, but to celebrate just, you know, taking over, head coach gets thrown out and you're only coaching for what have you. I think it just sort of minimizes it a little bit. I think it's something you should talk about, of course. Hey, hats off to, you know, Becky for doing what have you, coaching the game last night, but like you know, it's over pouring out of everywhere, you know, in the media from coaches to players. Again, I get it. We're in a society where we, we celebrate everything. But I think that she was just doing her job like any other assistant would. And that's my point. Exactly. I think you hit on, you hit on the nail on yeah. the head. I've got, I think the the things that um, she has done, like you said, summer league and even just becoming a woman that's at the front of the bench is an accomplishment that we celebrate and that we 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 tick a box with and say, hey, that's that's fantastic. But I just believe that if you start celebrating smaller things like that, it, it kind of it takes away from when potentially when Becky Hammond gets her first host, uh, head coaching job and it's celebrated. You might have some people that are kind of half tuning out, like, oh, here we go again, you know. And yeah, that's what you got to be careful of. And I think, like I said, I think it diminishes actual big accomplishments i just don't think it's that big of an accomplishment of coaching a game where a head coach gets thrown out winning a summer league though like you said fantastic so i hope we see her coaching an nba team one day um and that should essentially be one of the next jobs you'd think right with with the way the league celebrating women in the nba and, and the whole the whole movement around um women in sport i think the next opening you know at least your top three candidate should be should be a woman yeah, and I think that she, I think she's, I think she's by far probably the best candidate. I mean, look, she's moved up, and I'll, you know what? I'll give San Antonio a little bit of credit. Uh, she wasn't a token hire, and obviously, w- 
how they do things over there. And I'll give you, give you the reasoning. They had a, she was behind the bench. She, she was getting interviews for head jobs, even though she was only behind the bench, but they had a couple of people move on to become head coaches and they promoted her. So it's not one of those things where she, they just wanted a woman on their staff and then they would have these hires, like uh, their assistants would move on and they would hire other people over her, you know, which would say, wait a minute, like she's waited like any other assistant. Why isn't she moving up? And they promoted her to in front of the bench. So I, I'll give them a lot of credit. A lot, of, you know, you know how it is, Bogues, a lot of people in this league. They just talk like they do it on social media and they want everyone just to think they're included in this and oh, they're all for it. But when it comes time to, you know, either hire people or do things that they don't do it, but they just want that perception like they're all on board on things. I I give San Antonio some credit, you know, for promoting her, developing her and, you know, helping her become, you know, a good candidate for a head coaching job. And she will be. But you're right. I I just think that, you know, to, to praise that. You know, and again, that that's Pop's choice. It's literally like, who's going to win the lottery today? And I could pick. You know, I'm getting thrown out. I'm picking the coach. So I'm going to pick you to coach. It's not like I said. It's not like she coaches from tip to buzzer. She had a. She filled in for a boss who's telling her to coach. So you know, it, I know we're in a. Like I said, I know in the society we we celebrate everything. There's not three minutes that goes by that there's not an NBA re- a new NBA record found by some <laughs> yeah. stats nerd that yeah. goes out in the league. But it diminishes a little bit, you know. And look, I'm not going to tell anybody how to feel or anything, but like to me, it diminishes it just a little bit when you're celebrating that. The other things, no question. When she becomes a head coach, no question. And um, yeah, that's just sort of how I feel on that. Yeah, I agree. And I think San Antonio is probably the best spot. I think, like you said, with the assistants, they're, they're notorious for developing assistants that get um, head coaching jobs all around the league. I'd, I'd love to know the number of, of how many San Antonio Spur kind of alumni are head coaching teams in the NBA. It'd be a pretty pretty decent number, but I think she's in a good spot to move on anyway. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll move on from that. Kyrie Irving. <laughs> Hello again. Oh, shocker. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It's um, reported that didn't let Steve Nash know, completely kind of went AWOL, disappeared, didn't come to the game and didn't let anyone know. Basically, someone reached out to him and there were rumors that he said he just didn't feel like playing. That's that's being kind of drawn back. Now people are saying that 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 was a fake quote put out, but it was printed and and quoted by a bunch of media outlets. But um, how do you see see that all going? I mean, I see this as a a train wreck for their their locker room. I've heard culturally it's, it's not not going too well in that locker room. Um, I think KD's been actually real positive from what I've heard inside there, trying to keep everyone together amidst all this, but interesting times, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, he's not going to be the, you know, regardless of what, it's not the question of missing the game. Missing the game, look, how you know how many NBA players miss games for no reason, non-injury reasons. That's fine. You come in, you say, I'm not going to play. I don't feel like it for whatever reason. Obviously, the DC thing, you know, came on the same day or in the the same time. So I understand it. But when you don't tell your coach, it's just unprofessional. And, you know, players all the time, you hear it all the time. Basketball is a business. Basketball is a business. Half the time, those players have no idea what that means. They say it because everybody else says it. And they say it when they only say it when they're getting fucked on their contract in a negotiation, or they're going to fuck the team and go somewhere else. And they just say it's a business. Well, it's, that's not, that has very little to do with it being a business. Being a business is you're in partnership with your team and your teammates and your organization. And you have to be professional. 
And that's the part where it, it is a business. You have to tell your coach because you put Steve Nash in a hard spot. 99% of the time in the NBA, it doesn't matter if it's a player's fault. The coach is going to take the bullets from the media. They're going to they're gonna jump in front of things and protect the player. They just have to. That's just protocol in the NBA. But when you make him look stupid and said, well, I, I haven't heard from him, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And the media is just going to like, now it's just a media frenzy about it. You already had, look, I like Kyrie Irving. He's a good player. He's not, I, I've spent some time with him, not a bad kid, but you got to call it, you got to call it the way you see it. This is unprofessional. This is not how professionals act. And with young players that are very impressionable in your locker room, you're saying, well, is this how I do it? You know, when I start getting to be a veteran, is this how I'm going to handle it? You have to communicate with your organization. You got to protect them like they protect you and you got to move on. I just think this is like Steve Nash is one of the best human beings of all time I've heard, you know, from the people who know him. And just to do this to him, it just, it's not a good, it's just not a good impression. It's just not professional. Yeah, and Brooklyn are slated to be one of the favorites to at least end up in the NBA finals, if not the conference finals. So, I mean, like you said, who takes the bullet if they don't? It'll be Steve Nash, if not the GM. So, it's other, there's other ramifications of, of things like that, um, especially from a guy, you know, you're making $30, $40 million a year. The least you can do is, is flick your coach a text message these days, maybe Instagram, DM him, do whatever you got to do, but at least get some sort of message to your head coach saying, I'm not in the mental space to play. But um, from what I heard also that he, he wasn't reachable the next day and, and almost the day after it was they, they didn't know where he was. They didn't even know if he was in in the city of, of where they were playing. So, yeah, I think it sets a bad precedent. I mean, like we've discussed it before with the Yogi, Yogi Farrell reference. I mean, if someone on the Brooklyn Nets 11, 12, 13th rostered guy did that, what do you think would happen? You think the equipment guy, if he if he doesn't call anybody and he just doesn't show up, you think he's going to be <laughs> yeah. all right? Yeah. I mean, come on, give me a fucking break. It's just it – just, I'm prof- – I'm a, I'm all about professionalism. I don't care if you average three points a game or 43 points a game. It just, everybody's in that locker room together. Everybody's together. And to do that and to put your coach and your team out there, it's just, it's a, it's, I don't care if you, you won that game or lost that game. It's just not, it's not professional. It's not the way it should be done. Yeah, and then you've got yeah. I mean, it's just it's just hard. What what do, what do Brooklyn do? They still haven't really announced anything. I don't I don't think they do anything because of the you know everything going on in the world. I think they're just going to try to block it out and move on. The NBA has announced they won't find the nets because potentially the the game was um, a nationally televised game. So you've got that new NBA rule where if you rest guys, you can find the team. But the NBA has came out and said that you know he missed it for his personal reasons. So I'll be interested to see what Brooklyn does because I think it also. You know, back to Steve Nash. I mean, it can it can kind of hurt his credibility a little bit in that locker room if they do absolutely nothing too. You know, I think it's I know it's Kyrie, and I know Kyrie can go a wall completely, and you might not want to push that button yet and, and and make it go get even worse. But you know, if you're a younger guy now, and and can you now disrespect Steve? You know, I think that's a question that he'll probably have to fix within that that own group. But you hope that things turn around for for Brooklyn. Moving on, there was an article. I think you sent it to me. Trey Young, John Collins article written in The Athletic by Chris Kirshner. Basic story is Trey Young was called out in a meeting by John Collins, said, look, you're, you're shooting early in the shot clock. I feel like I can be more involved. I mean, part of that from John Collins might be he think, feel like he needs more touches individual. It could be more team orientated where you know the ball's moving more, we win more, whatever it is, who knows 
the real reasons, but caught him out in a in a in a film session. Reported that Trey doesn't respond in meeting, then leaves the meeting and, and pouts to teammates about what John Collins said instead of addressing it face to face. Then goes and and does the locker room lawyer type shit, which can absolutely derail a team, as we both know. Clint Capello weighs in, which I found interesting. He weighs in and says, "Look." Guys, I've seen this with James Harden and Dwight Howard. This exact same thing happened. They were both pouting about touches and then one got traded. We, we just never really gelled because of that. Don't do that. I guess it then festered onto a game or two or three. And you said you watched a few of those games where it seemed like Trey Young was going with the passive aggressive. I'm not going to shoot. I'm just going to not try to make plays. I'm just going to pass it to other guys who obviously aren't as talented as him and can't create a shot as well as he can and see if you guys can do it without me. And and that was blatant definitely against Detroit where they got blown out. And um, I think you watched a few of those games as well, right? Yeah. So that was the Charlotte game. It wasn't Detroit. Detroit was earlier in the year, but the Charlotte game is uh, the first Charlotte game. They're playing Charlotte tonight as well. But I mean, frustration is obviously normal with teams that aren't winning. You know, they, they made a lot of free agent pickups in the summertime. They, they upgraded their roster and they, they, they came out to be like four and one in the start of the season. When I was talking to a, a couple of friends of mine around the league, they were talking about Atlanta. And I'm like, yeah, but the NBA is big. It doesn't matter if you start out good. You're eventually going to get punched in the face. And what are you going to do when you get punched in the face? What's Trey Young going to do? What's John Collins going to do when they get punched in the face and they start losing? Because it, it all it goes with every team. And it just seems like they're frustrated. Those guys are not, you know, they're, they're sort of losing it a little bit in the last few games. And, you know, John Collins, I think, you know, his number's a little bit down. He passed up $90 million in his contract. Um, he wants a max deal. So he probably wants more touches and he wants to be a, a more of a focal point. But this all goes down to a couple of things. The team-wise, they got to do a lot better defensively. You know, like that, that's a big problem with them. You know, they don't have anybody that can really guard anybody. Trey Young, if he wants to be the leader of the team, needs to, you know, take more of a focal point on defense. You know, he can't be passive aggressive if somebody calls him out. That's part of being an NBA player. You're going to get called out. And, you know, if it's your own teammate, you might not like the way he did it, but that's just the way it is. You have, you know, you have Rajon Rondo in that locker room where, you know, he, if I was Trey Young, because Trey Young right now and John Collins right now are just players that put up numbers on bad teams. They, ha- they haven't found a way to win yet, and they have to find a way to win, and they have to understand what winning is. And yeah, I mean, Trey Young, you're not going to win if you're passive-aggressive and, and you want to disengage in games because you, you felt as though you got called out and you don't agree. And that team, as it is, you know, they expect, obviously their GM came from Golden State. They expect Trey Young to be Steph Curry. He's not Steph Curry. You know, Steph Curry is one of the best shooters of all time. He he's, he shot under 40% from three, maybe once, if not twice in his whole career, where Trey Young's like a 36% three-point shooter. You know, he puts up numbers, but they don't win. So how does that translate? And I think that they need to get together. They need to stop, you know, stop the bullshit, get together and say, look, we have to win. You know, we have to do better. We have to play better. And Capella's got to be better too because he's the anchor of that defense. And yeah, he's putting up numbers. But when I watch them play, he's not active on defense. He's not really protecting the rim. He's, you know, he's late on rotations. The weak side doesn't give a fuck. Like they really need to center in defensively and then get good shots because they're not, they're just not good enough to show up. They don't have that talent. Gallo's been out for a while. Rondo's got that bad knee. He's out for a couple more games. So they have to right the ship. And you just can't decide to quit. you got a coach who's on his last year of his deal who potentially could lose his job. 
and you're just going to quit on you know you quit on the team because you just get called out. That's not winning to me in this week, and, and it's hard to be a winner in this week. He averaged 29 a game last year. I get it, but that's again they don't win. They're one of the worst teams in the league. So you have to figure out, be on the same page, get through things together. And again, when you get punched in the face like this and things aren't going your way, you figure out together. You know, you watch more film, you talk to the coaches. And you get on the same page. You don't just pout and say, "Oh, I'm not going to do it tonight because I got called out." It's it's just not the way it gets done. And I've seen I've seen there's been good players that have done what Trey has done for maybe a half or a game. I mean, Kobe did it. I think Kobe did it. There was a, there was a game back in the day. I believe that he he refused to take a shot. Wasn't there? Was it against the Suns? Maybe. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So I mean, like, he's the best player he in the did. world essentially at that at that point. So even he's had had bad halves or quarters but you can't like you can't let that fester into all of a sudden two games three games five games a month and then all of a sudden you're you're nine and 18 and like you said the season's over but one comparison i'd have look steph curry a lot of people compare trey to steph similar kind of starts in the league high scorers when for me when steph really turned the corner i mean once he blocked out that whole i need to get my numbers to solidify where i was taken in the draft and, and that i'm the face of this franchise once he realized that, hey, if, if some of these role, role players that are helping me, if I can get them going early, if I can get them, you know, Andre Wadala hits a three, Bogut gets the dunk, David Lee gets a, a finger roll, and I get everyone involved without being overly trying to get them involved because there's a difference, but still being aggressive. Steph knew that he'd have, he'd have a three or four minute block that once everyone else has hit a shot and flattened out that defense and made it a bit more honest, he'd have a three-minute block where he'd score 16 points. Once Steph figured that out, yeah. it was over for the league because he knew that he could switch off for a couple of possessions. He could play off the ball maybe and not pout about, hey, I didn't get a touch for three possessions. It didn't matter because he knew eventually that defense would flatten out and become honest and bang. And you look up and he's got six points and then five minutes later, he's got 21. And that happens so many games. And I try to tell so many young guys that like, you don't need the ball. You don't need to do 15 dribbles. You don't need to have the touch every possession. When you're an unbelievable shooter and scorer, you'll do it in bunches and quick. And, and Clay and Steph are notorious for it. Like Clay probably a little bit different because he'll shoot it whenever he touches it. But, sure. but Steph, Steph figured that out. And then on the defensive end, Steph figured, all right, I'm saying I'm a bad defender. He got to a point where he was an average, if not above average defender at times, just from, it wasn't from strength or quickness. It was strictly on knowing the scouting report, doing his extra work before games, and he became a two-time MVP. And that's the correlation I'd have for Trey is like, if you can get John Collins two dunks, if you can get Gallo two open threes, eventually there's going to be a, a lull in that quarter or half where they kind of don't forget about you, but it's kind of the shackles are off a little bit and you go bam, 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 bam. And then for us with the Warriors, it was a five-point lead, went to 18, and, and the game was almost over. No, it's the same conversation I had with Kobe when I started working for him. It was like, look, get you know, get Trevor Ariza going, get Paul Gasol going, get Derek Fisher going, get Lamar Odom going. And if you can get those guys going, you don't have to work as hard and, and put so much on your shoulders. And I'm not saying Trey's like, a, a, you know, he's a selfish player at all. He probably puts it a lot on himself. And you could tell, I had a couple of friends that scouted him when he was in college. And they told me that he's very to himself, doesn't really hang out with teammates, doesn't really eat with teammates. He doesn't, you know, he, he sort of takes care of what he needs to take care of. He puts his work in. And as a point guard, you can't really do that, in my opinion. You have to lead. You know, you watch Rondo play, you know, and, and again, all players are different. I don't expect him to be like Rondo, but like you watch him, he's directing, he, you know, he puts, gets everybody in a huddle. He tells everybody where they need to be. 
And then also, if he's trying to be like Steph Curry, where here's where I think a big difference in both their games. Steph was so good off the ball. You know, he got to be like, all right, I'll give it up early in, in the possession and sprint to the other end of the floor, coming off a pin down, off to, you know, cut to the basket or coming off a pin down for a shot. So he was always cutting, always moving. It seems like Trey, when he gives the ball up, Bogues, he just sort of stands there. Stops. Yeah. yeah and, the, and you just can't stop. Not in today's game, the way that games, you know, the, the way the game's played. You got to continuously be cutting, screening for people, cutting to the basket, spacing the floor, get the ball back. You can't just sort of, you know, you can't just sort of stand still. It just doesn't work. They'll figure it out. But, you know, again, it's not about just putting up your points because anybody could put up points on bad teams. You got to figure out how to win. And like you said, you got to get those guys involved early. You know, Bogdanovich, I think, just got banged up tonight, too. So they're losing guys. It's going to be tough. But again, when you get punched in the face in this league, you got to step up and you got to, this is how you react. Anybody can go three and one. You know, anybody can go three and one, four and one, five and one early in the season, but there's going to be adversity and how you're going to, how you're going to get impacted. Look, in college, you had seven bums you had to play before you got to conference, right? Azusa State, Pacific Union. You don't have bums on your schedule in the NBA. You know, everybody's got NBA players. Yeah, you, you know, if you don't show up, you can get blown out. It doesn't matter if you're playing the 30th best team in the league. So you can't take days off, especially them. So you have to get it together every night and figure it out. And like I said, when you face adversity, anybody could, you know, pump their chest out when they're five and zero, four and one. But there's gonna be there's gonna come adversity, and this is how you this is how winners become winners. How they deal with the adversity. Yeah, I agree. And look, Atlanta's at that point where it's it's not cutting time within now or over the next year. They've got a pretty good roster on paper, and unfortunately, we're probably going to see a head coach get fired if they don't figure this thing out. So let's um, watch that one closely. They're one of the most more exciting young teams in the league, but let's hope they can turn it around. Let's move on to, to a conversation we had during the week, the state of the game, the state of the NBA. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious with where the game's headed or where it's at. It's, it's bomb up as much threes as you can. I mean, there's not a whole lot of defense that's heavily emphasized. I mean, to see some scores in the 130s, 140s to me is nonsensical. On the flip side, the refing's changed. You can't touch anyone. Physicality's kind of gone out of the game. Um, there's a lot of analytics guys that obviously favor, let's hoist up as much threes as we can because that's what the analytics say. Um, how, do you, how do you see all that? Yeah, so over the summer, I, I read uh, this book called Sprawl Ball, and it's about analytics, and it explains it really well about what you know, sort of the idea behind analytics. And what they want to do, analytics people, is squeeze every point out of a pos- as many points out of a possession as possible. They feel as though NBA teams are going to shoot 36% from the three, you know, throughout the course of a season. So every time you take a three, it's going to be worth 1.2 points every time you shoot the three. Because it's going to even out by the end of the year, end of the week, end of the month. And if you take contested two-point shots and mid-range shots, they might be worth 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8. So the analytics people explain it. Look, it's like playing blackjack and you have like a 10% advantage over your opponent, Johnny, who's pl- from Oklahoma City, who just wants to burn 300 bucks uh, on a night in the town. If you have a 10% advantage over 30, 40, 50 hands of blackjack, you're going to end up grinding out wins versus somebody who doesn't have any type of advantage. So the analytics people just want to see threes and layups. Daryl Morey is, is big on it, obviously, with the threes and the layups, and they don't like the mid-range you know, in Houston and now in Philly he's trying to do the same thing. So what happens, Bogues, it's probably been around for about nine or ten years, You know the analytics movement in the NBA, 
And what it does, it takes a lot of originality out of the out of the NBA game because a lot of the teams, they play the same. You know, they want to jack up threes and they want to shoot layups. And, you know, look, when you when you have a roster that's built for that, you look pretty good. You know, when you're making threes, you know, especially when you're down early, you take more threes, it's going to get you back in the league and get you back in the game. But when you're a bad team, which you have a few in the NBA now, it, it just when you're jacking up contested threes and these sidestep step backs and you're taking shitty shots early in the shot clock, you're gonna put you're gonna get yourself, you know, you're gonna get yourself in trouble where you're losing 30, 40, 45, 50 points, you know, because it's a talent league. And I just think that what analytics should tell you is what sort of shot, you know, what type of shots you should take, but you should come sort of in the middle where, okay, we got to take more threes, but we got to hunt good threes, not just take threes because analytics says 1.2 points for every shot. And it's a big difference to me. I think that you should be able to take good shots, try to screen well, get uncontested looks from three and two, but obviously know where the trouble spots are analytically, it, you know, where you're more and less efficient from. And I just think that the NBA right now, Bogues, it's averaging 73s a game. Every team's averaging about 35 threes per game right now. So 70, 70 threes are taken every game. I just, it's an ugly game when it's not played well. What are your thoughts on it? I, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old and I'm obviously a guy that played the five spot in the NBA. So I'm probably slided more towards against a lot of threes. But I think there's a need for analytics. I, I have no doubt. I think it's a very important part. I think it's gone too far over to that side. I feel like some of the beauty out of basketball is gone. I think that probably is what you were trying to say is there's no real surprises anymore. There's no real, hey, that was a great play. It's all it's generally 90% pick and roll with the floor spread and, and someone getting half a look at a three and hoisting it up. And I think the beauty of the NBA in the 90s and the 2000s was the different styles playing against each other. You know, like you'd have, even when I was towards the end of my career with Golden State, it was the Golden State Warriors versus Memphis in the playoffs was like a matchup of complete opposites, right? Because you had, you had Memphis that started two slow big guys in Zebo and Gasol and you had us who started a, an active four-man and just a solid big. So two completely contrasting styles and it was interesting like which one's going to win you know whereas now it's basically the only interest is who makes more threes um but one thing I'll, I'll also say what's the most important shot to have in the nba playoffs in the finals though mid-range game exactly A mid-range jump shot yeah so it's yeah in the regular season you can you can definitely the referees call it a lot more tighter you can't touch anyone so you can get that you can get to the rim you can get to the free throw line you can get your open threes guys just had a night on the town they're a little bit more tired there's a lot more traveling you get to the NBA at least the, the conference finals and the finals the refs swallow their whistles it becomes much more of a man's game and the shot you're giving up is the mid-range as a defense and you're ever rarely going to go down the middle of the lane and get a dunk. You're ever rarely going to get a feet set wide open three. So the shot that you got to start making, Kawhi Leonard in the NBA Finals against us killed us that year when we played Toronto. He was hitting the mid-range and that was the shot we will get yeah. up. So it's like, it kind of, I mean, if you want to win a championship, you're not going to, you're ever rarely going to do it in my opinion, with the with the D'Antoni style solely. You, you got to have a few different, you know, strings on your bow, essentially, you can't just go all into that. But it's just it's just an interesting observation because the mid-range pull-up is the most vital shot in a final series, in my opinion. Yeah, the three-point shot, look, it can, it, it's not bad. It's not where, 
you know, look, like back in 1980, Bogues, they took six threes a game <laughs> total in NBA games. If Daryl Morey was a GM back in, back in 1980, he'd be like that old guy on the Shawshank Redemption that, that fucking said Red was here and fucking, you know, and, and sort of, you know, ended his life. You ever see, you ever yeah, see yeah, that, yeah. that Shawshank? Yep. Yeah. He'd be like that guy. He'd be, he, he, didn't, he wouldn't know what to do with himself. So like, I understand it. The three-point shot's valuable, but I think hunting good threes, and it just, you have a lot of these teams that don't have the shooting to back that up, and they just, and they hoist up these bad shots, and it's awful. You know, you know how many times I have to watch two bad teams play? The TV network should save themselves some money and just play a video of those three poor bastards playing the fucking violin on the Titanic and see the water just go up. I'd rather watch that for fucking 48 minutes than watch a bad game of guys just hoisting shots up. Look, how you win in this league, you com- first of all, competition. You got to be competitive. Good shot selection, threes and twos. And you got to give a fuck on the defensive end. And you watch teams play mo- for the most part, unless it's a big game or a playoff game, or it's a difference between winning and losing. Most of these possessions, teams don't care about it defensively. And then offensively, it's your turn. All right, it's my turn to score. It's your turn to score. And these games are fucking brutal. Not all of them. Don't get me wrong. There are some good matchups. But when you have bad teams that you know, the, just think because, you know, obviously the, the analytics thing is being pushed where you got to take threes and layups, threes and layups, where you have just these bad, bad shots and bad shot selections in situational basketball where you're making the wrong read. You know, I remember when I was in Dallas and I was talking to somebody, you know, we we're just talking about Luka Doncic and I said, okay, so Luka's coming off a screen. He's coming up a step up, and the guy guarding the screener is in the paint, protecting the uh, protecting the paint. And Luca comes off the pick, and he buries his guy on the pick. So now he's coming off a screen where he's got all this pocket of space from like thirteen to eighteen feet wide open. What do you want him to do? And he goes, "Well, dribble back out and shoot a three, or <laughs> pass out and make a three. So I said, "That's where you lose me, and that's where you lose a player that's that's been playing w- like with feel his whole career. Where now you come, look, I understand. You know, you don't want to take contested shots. I get it. So what what analytics taught me is, okay, n- you know, cut down your contested shots, especially from two or three. Post-ups, I wouldn't just throw it down in the post and have a guy go to work for like 14 shots from the post a game. I'd probably put him in pick and roll, you know, let that 1-5 switch happen and then roll him to the post and post up. I'd give him some, you know, post-ups on the run, but mostly post-ups on switching. I'd get him on rolls, get him on, you know, rim runs, but I would probably change the way I play a little bit. But you have to take good shots and you have to have good shot selection and you have to try to fight for great shots. And that could happen in two-point shooting by screening well with pin downs or screen to roll. That could happen with threes with making that extra pass, sucking the defense in and hitting a three-point shooter. But now you have dribble up threes. You've got, you know, if James Harden's doing it, Steph Curry's doing it, it's a little bit different. And, and that's my thing. It just takes the beauty out of the game where, you know, ball movement, ball movement, throw it in the post if they could score, if there's a good matchup. Now it's just pick and roll, pick and roll, pick and roll until you get the matchup that you want and the mismatch. And then you got to see somebody dribbling around for fucking half an hour getting a shot off. It's just tough. Yeah, I guess that's why the old saying on a regular NBA season, going back to you saying guys not playing hard, was true basketball fans would say, tune in after the All-Star break, <laughs> you know. and Yeah. 
Yeah. That was known in our league, like with basketball purists, they wouldn't even watch the first three or four months because they're like, you know, there's not a lot of effort. Guys are saving their bodies. Tune in after All-Star when playoff spots are becoming a bit more solidified and the games actually count. And there might be an argument to that. Yeah, I agree. Moving on from that, we, we get on to role players. You sent me an interesting quote, which I'll get you to read in a second, but I guess the discussion is around, can players be role players these days? Is, is someone that's the seventh, eighth, ninth man, hey, your job is to come in, get five rebounds, set five good screens, block a shot and get a few dunks and that's it. We don't need you doing between the legs dribbles and, and trying to show us your bag. Like We know you can do that, but we don't need you to do that. It seems like that art is kind of dying these days because every player has an agent in their ear or a cousin or an uncle or a friend that you're getting screwed, man. You should get more minutes. You need more touches, all that kind of stuff. And you're starting to see role players just just gone. Um, whereas I guess when I came into the league, they were huge integral parts of the NBA. And I guess for people out there listening, what I equate that to is there's a reason why you never see NBA. The person that leads the G League in scoring, the minor league, ever rarely gets an NBA call-up. And why? Because the NBA teams already have good scorers. So you, if you really study it and you look, you'll see a lot of guys that get called up, especially late in the season for playoff runs, they fill a role really well. So they might be, they can get you 10 boards on any given night. They can take two charges. They can block shots. They can pick up full court and turn the opposing team's point guard for three or four minutes while Steph Curry's on the bench. And I think that that art of the role player has gone. What do you think? I totally agree. I mean, if you do the math in the NBA, Bogues, in my opinion, right, there's about seven elite players in the NBA. There's probably after that another 15 really high, high level players in the league. After that, there's about maybe 50 really good high end players that can be maybe your second option, most likely your third option of an NBA team. So basically, out of the 450 players, there's 100 that's really, really important. The other 350, it's like rearranging the deck chairs at a Titanic. It doesn't matter. You could fill in spots right? And not everybody could have the ball in their hands. And I think the biggest problem, and I faced it with, you know, directing player development in Dallas, where like everybody you draft, it doesn't matter in the first round, second round, and their college team, they were the LeBron James of their college team. Every play was called to them. Everything was run through them. They were the man. And then you get to the NBA and say like, you know, so say you go to Dallas, right? Right now, off the top of the bat is Luca and, and and Porzingis, right? And then you you have like Tim Hardaway Jr. You've got a couple of other players that are really good. So anybody they draft is going to be the fifth option at best when they get on the floor. So they're not going to be doing getting into their bag or any other of that bullshit. They're going to have to play a role. And the you know and the big thing when we got players and yeah you remember DK Don Coxstein he had an, a saying with players he goes look you got to be at a barbecue and when your coach asks you you know bring the ice that he didn't ask you to bring fucking soda he didn't ask you to bring hot dogs he asked you to bring the ice and you have to do one really good thing well and then when he could trust you to do that then you can move up a little bit and do a little bit more but to get on the floor you're going to have to do this thing really, really well. The, the, the quote that I read that I, that I sent you, I was looking up old quotes from players, and it was from this backup of the 86 Celtic team. He's a, uh, probably the second or third center. His name was Greg Kite. He was going to this big man's camp called P the Pete Newell Big Man Camp that was a real famous camp in the, in the 80s and 90s. And they were going to work on footwork. There's like eight, you know, 50 players that went to the camp. And what he said in the article is like, look, I know I'm not a really great player, I'm not, I'm not an all-star. 
I need to get better at a couple of things. I need to be better to back up Robert Parrish, who was the starting center, and help my team win. And today, if you read role players' comments, either what they tweet out or what they talk to media about, it's, you know, you guys are hating on my game. I'm top five at my position. You guys just don't know. And the problem is most players that come in with that attitude, they burn out easily. They burn out very quickly because they don't know how the game's played. They don't know how the business is done as far as getting to be a role player and then maybe developing a little bit better than a role player. There's a difference between being confident and being delusional. We had a guy, and this is this is another argument, which is on the other side of it. So in Dallas, we had Seth Curry and Seth was one of the best shooters I've ever seen. And he put his work in and, you know, he came in from the D league and, you know, he was sort of a, not a journeyman, but he was a, you know, a role player in the NBA. And he came and and he knew he wasn't a role player. He was very confident in his game, but he wasn't cocky about it where he was like arguing or complaining. And he's developed every year to get better where now he's averaging 17 a game early in the season for Philly and he's doing better. And yeah, he's not a franchise player, but he's developed into probably one of the best shooters in the game. And he's probably like a third, fourth option on an NBA team where that's the difference. He was confident in his game. But when you're, you know, when you're delusional and you're really like the ninth, 10th, 12th guy on an NBA team and you're talking like you're like should be starting this thing, the other thing, it really, you're going to burn out. You're going to burn out. And I, I think that, you know, because of agents, because of people in your ear, because of your trainer. Trainers work usually, and there's some good ones, don't get me wrong, they're not all bad, but 90% of trainers work on 85% of the things that you'll do 1% of the time. And it fucks players up. They're not working on the spot up shot. They're not working on cutting. They're not working on the dribble pull up. They're not working on things like that. They're working on the fucking 18 dribble step back, you know, Euro step move and then and finish. Well, you, they'll never do. You watch video of like every one of LeBron James's possessions or any other all-star. I would say they ISO and go into a hard move 5% of the time, tops. Most of the game is what? Spot up shots, straight line drives, dribble pull-ups, you know, cuts to the basket, transition baskets. And role players don't want to work on that shit. They think you're disrespecting them. Not all of them, but most of them. And that's what I think fucks up players more than anything. Yeah, and on the flip side of all that with role players, do you remember a guy named Reggie Evans? Of course you would. Players like him get a lot of shit from you know regular NBA fans. Oh, I'm better than him. I can I can shoot better than him, blah, blah, blah. But you knew when that dude came in, he'd set a motherfucker of a screen. He'd get you... A- you know, six or seven offensive rebounds per 10, 15 minutes that he was in, he'd get you six extra possessions and he'd be a solid defender and would know the scanner report. Couldn't couldn't really score to save his life, couldn't ISO you, couldn't dribble, couldn't he'd literally ball bounce the ball off his foot. But he ended up making 20, 30, 40 million dollars just on playing a role as the best of his ability and doing whatever the coach asked. And there's a beauty of doing that as well. You can make a lot of money doing it, but on the flip side, you, like you said, there's a lot of guys that are like, no, I want to I want to cross a guy over. It's like, we don't need you to do that. We have James Harden already. We need you to just be solid in your position, shoot the open shot or, or get the extra effort rebound and, and we're good to go. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's, again, social media is a big part of it. Everybody wants to be James Harden. Everybody wants to be Steph Curry. Nobody wants to be, unfortunately, nobody wants to be Evans. Nobody wants to do the dirty work. 
you know, everybody wants to be that great player. They don't want to be the Steve Kerr. They want to be, you know, they want to be the person with the ball in their hands and, and, and scoring 38, shooting a step back and all that stuff. Shit, you should ask them that question when they're playing in fucking second division in Estonia. Yeah, no shit. Hey, you want to come and you want to come and just sit five screens and get five rebounds for five million a year? <laughs> I'm sure it'd be a different answer. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I what's it called? I, there was a couple of players that we had in Dallas that, that, that were going to do that in summer league, and I said, you know what? I'll get you fucking, you know, on your way out, we'll give you your per diem and I'll give you some fucking Rosetta Stone because you're going to be needing that shit when you're playing in Estonia next year. <laughs> you know, because that's the truth. It's just like, look, the game, you just can't have everybody with the ball in their hands at all times. There's got to be players that do the hard stuff and you can get paid a lot of money. You can get scholarship. You can make a lot of, in college, you get a lot of fucking money in the NBA and overseas by doing one thing really well. And unfortunately, these guys don't want to do that a lot of times. Yeah, no doubt. It's a shame, but it is what it is. They'll regret it later on in their career. If only I just, I could just shut up and, and play a role. I'd have an extra 15, 20 sitting in the bank account. But um, moving on quickly, I'll touch on NBL. We've got a bit of an issue here. Borders are still closing. We just had Brisbane locked down for the weekend. The NBL is playing musical chairs essentially with, with where they're going to start the season and now they've changed the schedule again. To me, it comes down to they've organized a hub to start four weeks into the season, which was – it wasn't a hub done for safety reasons, which is what irks me a little bit. It was a hub done for fiscal reasons. They got some money from the state government of Victoria and they're having a hub. I mean, my opinion is they should have started in a hub and then see how it goes, similar to what the NBA did last season. And then if things open up and get back to normal, then we can kind of um, shorten the hub. But just a quick one for you to to keep your – your eyes across that hopefully the season starts uh, next weekend. So there's not really much to talk about, but let's hope the NBL can get rolling in these crazy times. So nothing really other than that to say because no games have been played. So we'll move on to to the Q&A. So we've been trolled already, Pro. <laughs> okay. I'm sure you'll be glad to hear it. Sure. I'll, re- I'll read this out because <laughs> I wasn't aware of the reference, but um, sure. I'll read this whole email out because I think it's pretty funny. Hello, Andrew. I really enjoy your podcast. As a lifelong Warrior fan, I was really bummed when they traded Monta for you. Of course, I thought it was a complete joke when the Warriors said they were going to compete for a championship. Monte was an exciting player. You were not an exciting player. Awesome. <laughs> maybe, Jer- maybe Jerry West has a better eye for winning basketball than I do. Who knows? That fat guy, Mike, is really doing good on the podcast. I looked him up and you know who he looks like? King Kong Bundy. Maybe you guys can do the pro wrestling circuit together. My question for you, 2015 championship season, David Lee kind of came out of nowhere to spark the team on offense. Defensively, he couldn't do anything with the Cavs' front line, but it seemed like he created a blueprint that helped Draymond figure out how to contribute on offense. Can you talk about that series and Lee's contribution? Bonus question, which is King Kong Bundy and which is that fat guy, Mike? And he has attached a photo of each. <laughs> I, forward you, <laughs> I forward you the email. Yeah, first of all, the guy's from fucking Sacramento, okay? If, if anyone hasn't been if anyone hasn't been at Sacramento and took a walk down Sacramento, you would think you're on a casting call for fucking The Walking Dead because there's about 8 million zombies in the middle of downtown. That's first <laughs> of all. Second of all, that's disrespectful to fucking King Kong Bundy, okay? That guy actually had a waistline. With me, when I ask for fucking, you know, when I ask for a belt when I go to the store, they say, just wear the equator around your fucking waist and shut the fuck up. So, <laughs> you know, King, that's disrespectful to King Kong Bundy. Rest in peace, by the way. He just passed away. Oh, wow. Did he? That's not good. 
Yeah. So that thanks a lot, pal. Yeah, that's a little bad fucking comment for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> Just sat on Sacramento. Yeah. To answer his question, I guess, yeah, David Lee was huge for us in the 2015 championship series. We went small. I played a lot less minutes in that final series. And David Lee, funnily enough, didn't play much during the regular season and end of the regular season and the playoffs. But a testament to, to being professional and staying ready. I think he got in for one game and might have had 15 points in, in quick succession in about six or seven minutes. So I guess, yeah, the only comment I'd have about that, especially for younger kids that aren't playing a lot, is just continue to put your work in and do the right thing. And you never know when a coach is going to put you in the game. In this case, it was an NBA final series that helped us win a championship ring. So thanks for your question. I'm sure Pro thanks you as well. Yeah, thanks, pal. I appreciate it. <laughs> Another one comes from, where is this one from? Greg Rutsinski out of, uh, doesn't say where he's from, so from somewhere, I assume. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I followed, enjoyed your career. Can draw plenty of similarities, being the migrant kid playing basketball in Australia. I have a couple of questions I'd appreciate for your podcast. You mentioned in your latest podcast that you were somewhat disgruntled with Basketball Australia as a junior. Can you please elaborate on this and what it was specifically when, what made you feel this way? Um, good question. Look, I, I think it was just, Kind of, you just felt like you weren't part of the establishment. I was never one of the kids that was in the coach's fondest group as far as parents making cookies and cupcakes and them hanging out on the weekend, having barbecue. I was never in that group of cool kids and cool parents. My parents kind of kept to themselves. So I felt like I was always kind of an outsider. And the WOG thing or being the Eastern European background played a little bit of a part. Probably, I probably thought it did more than it really did, um, but it definitely was a bit of an issue. Look, basketball clubs, especially where I played, were very Anglo at the time, very, very Australian, um, at least the junior sporting landscape. So it was a bit of an issue and I kind of had a chip on my shoulder with BA because of that. And because I never made a state team or, or a high elite team till later on in my career, I thought I was hard done by early. But stupidly enough, looking back, if I would have made those teams at a young age, I don't think I would have being the player I am today. So I think it all worked out in the long run. And the second question, what do you see were the key determining factors regarding your AISP is taking the next step as professionals? Did some choose the right path or was it a case of not being able to cut it? Well, I think just being a professional is not easy in any, any form of life, any profession. I think it takes a lot of time, effort, and it takes a lot of time and effort when you're not being paid to do something to, to continue to do it to better yourself. So the kids that went to the AIS and adapted well with the schedule and how brutal it was and, and, and just adapted on the fly and understood that a lot of the stuff that you're doing off the court, the ice baths, the stretching, the proprioception, the weights, they were all extensions of being a professional. So some kids didn't get that. They were just more like, hey, I just want to play basketball and, and they're the ones that more times than not fizzled out. Um, and I'm sure you'd see that a lot, Pro. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I listened to your pod today about talking about the AIS and, you know, how people just sometimes couldn't make it because they couldn't do the daily things. Look, getting better is boring. You know, it's not as exciting as you see it on Instagram where you're listening to rap music, fucking taking, you know, step back jumpers all day. You know, if you really want to be professional or something, especially at the international level, you know, they're really serious about it and working on all aspects of the game. And it's bo it's boring doing the same thing over and over and over again, but that's how you get good at anything. And I think that a, a majority of people just can't handle that. Sometimes it's going to be you're not good enough to make it, but a lot of times is you might be good enough to make it, but you just can't handle the daily routine that you need to be to be great. Also, side story, Bogues, I uh, applied for a job at the AIS back in 1997, you know. I'm sure you did. Yeah, you and I could have been... You know, I saw some advertisement online and I, and I called the guy 
And, you know, the guy, like we talked a couple of times, it didn't work out. He actually said, pal, you don't need AIS. You need fucking Overeaters Anonymous. So, you know, here's the number to it. And he gave me a few numbers to it. But no, I always respect the AIS. Didn't go. So, you obviously didn't go. Obviously, I didn't go. And I, you know what? I, I didn't go to show that motherfucker up. <laughs> That's no, right. but seriously, though. I, yeah, yeah. I respect the AIS. So, like, for the academy version, in, as far as being like an Olympic village and working guys and doing the right thing and working on the right things and, and developing you to become a pro. I actually really enjoyed you talking about it because there's not enough, I think, shared about the AIS and how good it, how good they were, you know, developing kids and treating them like professionals. Like in the United States, you don't have that. You know, you have high school, AAU, you hire a trainer, but it's really not anything that's regimented. You might be lucky enough to get a good high school coach early on or a good junior high coach early on, but you have nothing like that with an academy that's five days a week, 12 hours a day working you like that and having the coaching and the background that that you had at the AIS and they have in, you know internationally. Yeah, and it's go- it's government funded too, you know. That was a good thing about it. They're trying to take some funds away from it and there's always a battle, but that was the beauty of it. It was obviously formed because we sucked at the Olympics in the 80s and 90s and the government put that in place, but one of the fondest times of my life to be honest with you, as hard as it was and you thought you you know it was hell at times, it was it was awesome looking back. And then once I got to college, it was like college was piss easy compared to besides playing for Rick Majerus. Other than that, it was it was pretty easy <laughs> schedule wise because the AIS, like I said, they strategically put you through the ringer Monday to Friday, knowing that once you become a professional, you're like, hey, this isn't this isn't as hard as I thought. So, good question. Um, thanks for that. Next one is from Trent in Brisbane. Questions about crowds. Obviously, for you, they got bigger and bigger as you progressed. But was there ever a time you looked up and shit yourself? <laughs> Felt like every set of eyes was trained on you, made you nervous, put you off, a bit like public speaking for most with just that fear of, of stuffing up in, in front of a lot of people. Funnily enough, I just did a podcast about, which will come out soon, 2004 Athens Olympics. Um, it'll be the My Journey episode five. And I spoke about, we. so pro, we go to my first ever Olympics, we go to Athens and guess who's in our group? Greece. Guess where our first game is? Greece. Oh, great! So we run out. Of, we run out of this tunnel, man, and it was, it was whistling, yelling. It was English swear words in broken English. It was abuse. It was everything and your mother to the point where that was that was spitting on us, yelling so much. And it was I was nineteen, twenty, and I played in college, had all the rivalry game. It was nothing compared to that shit. There was they were lighting flares in that place. They were singing songs. They were trying to move the basket stanchion. <laughs> Just like holy shit, like it was unbelievable, and that was still to this day. I've played in front of. It was only about ten or eleven thousand that fit in that arena in Athens, but that was. I ran out and I was like, holy shit, this is this is some real. <laughs> these people, these people might kill us if we win. Like they dead set yeah. might not let us out of the arena. My first international experience, we went to um, before I saw you in Greece. I think the year before, I went to the um, the Reebok Euro Camp. You know, the Euro Camp where all those young guys go to uh, for the draft. And we went to an Italian playoff game and Trajan Langdon was playing. It was was two really good Italian teams. And they, it was so bad that they had armed semi-automatic soldiers that went in the um, visiting section and had like went all the way down the row and all the way across. So they were basically surrounded. They had flares, M80s, 
they had like one guy was like me he was like 400 fucking pounds he had shit he had no shirt on he had like stuff painted on it. and all he did he did i watched the guy the whole game he didn't watch the game once all he did was give the finger and the arm to the opposing uh the opposing crowd the whole fucking game <laughs> it was amazing that like it's nothing like the NBA. It's nothing like college. I don't care about what rivalry you have. There's nothing like international basketball, especially when there's a rivalry. And in the Olympics, in Greece, especially too, yeah, they're, they're, they're nuts, which is good. It's good, but it's also dangerous. They throw batteries. You know, you had a guy's um, lighting pennies on fire. Yeah, and then the cigarette lighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Un- like guys, unbelievable. Hits you and burns your skin. It's, it's almost like um, the near death appeals to them even more. You know, like let's do something that's just on the borderline of killing someone and it'll it'll create more passion for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted fucking pizza and fried fish. Give me a fucking break. I, I just wanted to get it halftime. We had to leave. We had to get fucking escorted out. It was crazy. Yeah, and I've heard there's, there's other stories. I mean, Shane Hill tells a story. I believe it was a um, former Australian player played in Greece. Could barely get paid on time was number one, but he played for a team that was, um, I think it might have been him or someone else, but that was a borderline getting relegated. And basically the game they lost to get relegated walks out to his car and, and all the fans are throwing eggs at all the players, the home players. <laughs> home fans are throwing yeah. eggs and it's just a whole other world when you hear the stories from from Europe and some of them are hilarious but then on the flip side you wouldn't want to be in in some of those locker rooms that um, your life's basically on the line but thanks for the question there next one comes from Tim from Muswell Brook in New South Wales did you have any other offers to go to any other colleges apart from the University of Utah? What was the University of Utah's biggest rival and how was the atmosphere when you played them? So first off, the biggest rival for the University of Utah was BYU. So that was the University of Utah was kind of the the mixed school. It was kind of Mormons and, and a lot of out-of-towners where BYU was the really strict Mormon school. So it just was a natural rivalry and still is to this day, a lot of fights and, and just a real passionate game. But I didn't really get any other big offers. I, I got a bunch of small schools, University of Fordham, in New York, um, a bunch of the, the Caltech, Cal Poly type schools. So nothing really big. And Utah got on me early and they were loyal to me early. And then my letter of intent expired that year, which I'll talk about in episode four of my journey. And I was supposed to go over and redshirt for half a season after Christmas and the NCAA didn't let me over. So my letter of intent expired. And then I had a bunch of the bandwagon schools call Oregon, Gonzaga, all these big schools started to call and say, hey, you're technically a, a free college agent um, as it would be. Would you want to come to our school? And I basically flipped them all a bird and said, where were you pricks from the start? So I, I stayed with <laughs> stayed with the University of Utah and, and it all worked out well. What about you? Where'd you go to school, pro? Suffolk University in Boston, uh, Division Three school. Yep. So that's where I went. Yeah, I had no offers like you. Were you the hockey goalie or something? No, I was. I was actually the goal. They they, they put me in. Uh, actually, I could have been a goalie. I would have fit the whole fucking net up. You wouldn't have scored one goal on. Yeah, you would have so been, been good. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Suffolk University, brother. Beautiful. All right, next question. Love the podcast. Love your work. All that fun stuff. Basketball question. A little off the cusp. I'm intrigued to know what your thoughts were around the Australia versus New Zealand rivalry in basketball and games that you've played in. How does the intensity compare to, say, NBA basketball? And then how do I see the New Zealand Breakers as a franchise? Uh, do I agree they should be in the NBL and the Australian League? And how do other people see things? I think the New Zealand Breakers have been a great story, very, very successful, very, very professionally ran, obviously new ownership now, and and they're trying to do all the right things, and they haven't had a whole lot of success the last couple of years. But 
I feel like they're well supported. The crowds there were always good, four or 5,000 people. So I think they're doing a good job and I like having them in the NBL. If, if that lasts long term, who knows? I know there's always a bit of an issue with with them, you know, having a positive uh, bank balance at the end of a season just because they obviously need to, they need to travel a whole lot more and they've got a whole lot more to deal with. Now, Australia versus New Zealand Pro, that's, that's kind of our USA-Russia of the 70s, 80s rivalry. Um, whenever we play in, whether it's basketball, soccer, or, you know, who can walk their dog down the street faster, it's, it's a huge rivalry. And I played in some fantastic games. We we kind of we when I started my national team career, New Zealand were really really good. They had a bunch of guys that were strong, physical, and they played around similar to a Princeton type offense where it was really methodical. But they'd just wait for someone in one position to make a mistake, and they'd punish you with an open three or a layup. And we played there many times, and and it was it was fun. Uh, it was physical. It was there was punches thrown in a few of the games and. Um, I don't know if you remember Pro, but they they do the hucker before the game. Yeah, I've seen that. We used to walk up to to the half court line out of respect and to show we're not intimidated and and hug hug arm, lock arms kind of along the half court line as they did it. And my very first uh, game for Australia was against New Zealand, and I guess they were going to welcome the the rookie, the nineteen twenty year old. And a guy ended up finishing his haka nose to nose with me. <laughs> so oh, I talk about. I think it. I've seen that actually. Yeah, I talk about it in the in the latest um, in episode five of my journey, and it was. I guess it was. They probably singled me out beforehand. Like, let's mess with this young kid a bit and try to rattle him. And I remember the last probably thirty seconds of him doing the haka and doing the verses was his spit was literally hitting my face. So I'm like, I'm like starting to get mad. Like I'm gonna punch this guy in the face if he doesn't get out of my face. And then when it finished, he was nose to nose. We're touching noses. And then the whole crowd, we're in New Zealand, the whole crowd stands up and starts yelling. And I'm like, fuck you, I'm not moving. And he was the same. So then his team had to come and grab him. My team had to come grab me, pull me to the bench. And then we had to drop our first play for opening tips. So I still remember it was uh, definitely an intense rivalry. What's your end of intense rivalries? Well, I heard he was actually related to that uh, to that swimmer that your boy knocked out at the AIS. Remember that story <laughs> you did in your uh, last fall? Yeah, he maybe. He said, I'm getting you fucking back. Yeah. But um, it's funny. Like, college used to have a lot of rivalries. They probably do still, obviously, um, a lot of good ones. The NBA used to be, you know, Lakers-Celtics, uh, Celtics-Sixers. There's a lot of rivalries. San Antonio-Dallas for a while. But internationally, it's the best rivalries I've ever seen. Panathiakos, Olympiakos, and you know, in uh, in in the Greek league, you know, the, um, Real Madrid and Barcelona in Spain. Yeah, I, I like the international rivalries to be honest, we a l- little bit better than the uh, than in college because it seems like in America, for the most part, players sort of like they don't really go at each other like that. Where in international, it, it's you know. They're, they're they've been they've been dealing with these rivalries for th- you know for twenty years, and they've seen it, and they grew up, and they hate the other team. It just seems like everybody's sort of into it a lot more than it is in America. So I, I enjoy the international rivalries a lot better sometimes, you know, uh, than the than the college and the pro one and the NBA ones. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's obviously a lot of it has to do with history, right? Hundreds of years ago, and, and different towns were almost different kind of ideologies or religions and it all kind of fested into into kind of sporting clubs down the track. But thanks for your question. That was uh, Simon from Launceston in Tasmania. Last one, a couple of questions. Does Andrew still have an ownership interest in the Sydney Kings and the quality of the league has grown by leaps and bounds over the years, but it seems to me as a one-eyed supporter that the quality of refereeing has not. Do you agree 
and what are your thoughts? So first off on the ownership thing, working through it right now, the issue I've got from the big dogs in the NBL is if I stay on as an owner or sorry, join the ownership group of the Sydney Kings, I will be somewhat muzzled as to what I can do and say and as you know, pro, that's not me. So sold. That's so yeah. So I, hey, I can I can give you twenty bucks just to get you fucking talking again. Just <laughs> that, that's that's my first offer. Just so you know, it's on the table. Yeah. So to answer your question, Eddie, we're working through it, but it's not looking likely. I, I don't like the likelihood of being muzzled by anybody. So I don't I don't think it's going to happen. But if it does, we'll be the, we'll let you know. And the second question around the refereeing. Look, I think the referees in any league they get they get. They're hard done by at times. They're human beings. They make mistakes. And this is coming from me, a guy who's notoriously got into it with referees over the years. And and that's just a part of the passion and the fire. And when you're in that moment, you're frustrated. But you have to understand they're human and they make mistakes. The issue I have with the NBL and their referees is I think there's only two or three referees that are full-time referees. So what does that mean? That means the resources, the money, the referee doesn't have you know, an incentive to go home and study the mistakes he made on tape or to watch, you know, certain habits of certain players that are getting away with things. They don't have that time invested because they're not being compensated. So the two or three refs that are full-time obviously do. But if if you're going to be a professional league, you need to also treat the referees as such. So I don't entirely blame the level of refereeing solely on the referees. I think to take that step forward, we need we need the referees to have a full-time paycheck. What do you think, Pro? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think that, look, like you said, they are humans and they make mistakes. But if you're not, if you're in a professional league and you're not full time, you know, in, in America, like NBA refs are full time and they, they get paid full time. And that's what, all they do. Where in college sometimes and even football, like football, they were, for years they weren't. And I, I still think they're not full time. They just get paid by the week. So it's really hard to really invest in your craft to becoming a better referee if that's not your full, full-time employment. So I think, yeah, for sure they have to do that. And look, they're going to make mistakes. And look, there's a, there's a couple hundred possessions that go in an NBA game. I don't know about the NBL and, and whatnot, but you know, there's plenty of time to make mistakes. You're just human. But I think if you really want to get better referees, you got to develop them, hold them accountable, but also give them a full-time uh, salary and wage where they don't have to worry about another form of employment. That's 100%, 24-7, what they're invested in as far as getting better at it. Yeah, I agree. Totally. You just got to – and the unfortunate reality for the NBL is it's not a league that has a lot of money, so they got to kind of budget. But yeah. at the same time, if you want to hold that professional mantra and be that league that's now essentially – Getting close to, to being the two, three, four, you know, league in the world. Um, you gotta you gotta lift that that side of things. So we'll move on to story time with brogues and pro. These these are obviously fun, lighthearted. I've kept it to the role player theme. So I'm gonna start off. You've got a few good ones as well, I believe. But um my one is around the role player kind of agenda we we're talking about earlier. I had a teammate named Jeremy Tyler. Now, this is a kid that was very, very good in high school. He took some bad family advice at one point and dropped out of high school in, I think, 11th grade, went over and played in, in maybe, I think, Israel first and then Japan and didn't work out and kind of bounced around. And we ended up, the Warriors ended up drafting him second round. I mean, he was a, a pretty good prospect, long, athletic. And he was a prime example of a very talented kid that was told he was the best thing ever since he was 10, 11 years old, but didn't really have anyone giving him good direction. And 
I remember the story goes like this. Look, he, he had a lot of guys trying to help him. He was a bit of a hothead. He 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 wouldn't didn't really understand why he wasn't playing. He looked at us upon like, hey, I'm better than that guy. I should be playing. Well, it's not as simple as that. We have Steph Curry, Clay Thompson. You need to fill a role. We're not going to give you 20 post touches a game. Um, and he was a four five man. We're, we're playing against Miami when LeBron was there. I was sitting on the bench with him. And this kid, keep in mind, has barely played a minute all year. Doesn't play much. He's been up and down to the G League. Hasn't played well down there. He's trying to find himself essentially before he gets shipped off to. Asia or Europe and, and, and he's, he's losing time he looks at me and he goes LeBron's on the team LeBron was averaging somewhere in the 20s 8 and 8 time or something like that not making a big deal how he was close to being you know one of the first players to average a triple double back then this was before the Russell Westbrook kind of surge and he looks at me and goes hey man like if I got the opportunity, I could average more than him and point to LeBron. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, if coach you know, wasn't hating and gave me the same minutes that, that he was getting, I could average, average a triple-double in this league. And I'm like, are you talking about LeBron? And he's like, yeah, I can, I, could, I could put up better numbers than him if I got 40 minutes a game. And I'm like, I looked at him, I said, Jeremy, man, maybe set the fucking bar a little lower and just try to start with a double-double first, which is hard enough in itself. The triple-double thing, and, and, that, and I felt bad for him to an extent because it was like there was a, a little bit of delusion where he really thought that. And I'm like, man, that's the best player in the world. That's LeBron James. Like he's What he's doing to even average five, five, and five isn't that easy, as silly as it sounds. He's, he's averaging you know, historic numbers and it just goes back to, to what you said about just didn't understand that if he just played a role of, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna light up Steph Curry's man on a screen every possession and get him some open shots, he'd still be in the league, but he just couldn't get that, that around him. He's playing a role right now. Unfortunately, it's in Okinawa, Japan, but he's playing a role. Yeah. And look, we try to help the kid. I try to help him. We try to help him, but it's it just you can only – you know, you can only help so much, and when you're beaten on a on a brick wall at times, you kind of give up, which is the unfortunate reality of it. But um, that's my story. Yeah, well, my story comes. There's a couple we talked about, but I'm gonna go with the role player story. So, sort of the same deal. There was a guy, uh, a point guard out of, out of New York, all American. His name was Omar Cook. This is probably like 2001, 2002. And he was an All-American out of St. John, uh, All-American high school, played at St. John's, uh, came out early and was a second round pick. He got, he, he got traded like twice on draft day. He played for the Denver Nuggets and then played for the Dallas, got released, played for the Dallas Mavericks and then got released again. I wasn't officially working for the Celtics, but I would do some odd jobs for him, like work players out or whatnot. So at the end of like the 03 season, I believe, uh, or the 2 season, they made the Eastern Conference Finals. They signed Omar at the last day of the season to get his rights. They gave him like 75000 guaranteed, and they wanted to work him out over the summer. And then, you know, to, to evaluate him the next year, maybe back up, you know, be a backup point guard and see where, where they go. Because he was such a talented kid coming up, but he couldn't shoot, and he just had a million people blowing him up because he was the best point guard in the United States. So they say, hey, Mike, the coaching staff doesn't want anything to do with him right now. They don't want him to come to practice. They don't want him around the team. They, you know, you, we want you to come work him out when the team leaves. You know, once the team leaves from practice, a couple hours later, you guys could come and work out. So I'm working out, just getting to know him. And as you know, I'm a little bit of a jokester. I mean, once in a while, and I'll throw some at you. Well, we after the workout, we we come to talk, and you know, I lose about 38 pounds of workout. A because you know. It, it only takes one up, one up and back to, for me to lose 38 pounds. And the second is he wasn't the greatest shooter in the world. So I sort of had to rebound his own, his, uh, his shots. 
But at the end of the workout, we're in the locker room and he goes, and then we're just talking. And he goes, you know, Mike, you know, my, my agent's going to give me the mat. I'm going to get the max next year. I said, Omar, first of all, I hope you're talking about a new meal. Uh, Burger King meal is called the max and you can get, super, <laughs> you know, extra fries and a drink with that. Second thing is, look, you've been on four fucking teams. There's nobody here. They've asked 48 guys to work you out. I'm the 49th. All right. Like it's either me or the homeless guy that was asking for change out front and it was neck and neck. And then, you know, I was, you know, I was sort of, I sort of made it by a hair. I said, where, where do you think you're making the max? And it just, it, it was unfortunate because the kid was a good kid. But the problem is again, young kids, Jeremy Tyler, same thing. They don't understand. And he, he ended up getting cut by the Celtics in, in summer league. He ended up playing. Um, he didn't get cut in summer league. Yeah, actually he did. And then he played like a couple of teams and then he faded out, played overseas actually for a while, still playing in Spain and actually rebounded to be a pretty good productive player in Spain. But the problem with these stories, Bogues, uh, a, a friend of mine told me this, you know, and I'll tell you that Omar Cook, he, he says they go through five stages, players do, and all people do, but players especially. Who's Omar Cook? Keep an eye on Omar Cook. Get me Omar Cook. Get me an Omar Cook type and who's Omar Cook? They get forgotten very quickly. It's like, you know, asking somebody who was prom queen in high school five years ago. Nobody remembers. And you only have a certain amount of time to be relevant and then to get you back on, to get you into your journey in basketball if you're good enough. And these players, they just don't understand. And Omar was a good kid. Don't get me wrong. But like, if he understood that, hey, I should have stayed in school. I needed to learn how to shoot. Let me get more good, big games under my belt and let me get better as a player. And then I could probably become a, a productive player, maybe even a starter in the NBA. But like a guy who got cut three times, getting worked out, worked out by a mutant like me, coaching staff didn't want him around that year. And to say that he's going to get the max the next year is, you know, it's preposterous. And that's just sort of what we're dealing with with players. And, you know, again, I'm glad he, he sort of made it. He, he played, oh, he's been playing overseas for 10, 12 years and he's made it. And that's great. But 99% of players like him would have definitely phased out in two or three years and never played again. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think a lot of it is, is the family and the friends and the agent and the group around him that just, uh, I just, you know, you kind of need some people to pump you up a little bit. Don't get me wrong. Like the NBA, I mean, I was I was heavily against pumping myself up and doing all my personal promotion kind of when I was in the NBA. But the way I had a teammate word it to me and said, "Look, if you're not your biggest fan, who is?" And that made sense a little bit um, because you gotta you gotta be your biggest fan essentially, which is kind of the contradictory to the Australian mindset. We're kind of the opposite. As soon as you do that, Australians equate you as a, an American and you're you're arrogant, you're selfish. So it's a fine line. But I think a lot of the times these people are just just they know what they're saying is not not the truth, and they know what they're saying is basically based on hoping an Omar Cook makes it so I can get some of the change, some of that money that comes flowing in. So I need to tell this kid, you know, do everything you can to be the best so I can get that free car or that free house. And it's the unfortunate reality. And for ninety nine percent of athletes, pro athletes, at least in trying to make the NBA, it doesn't work out well, and then. You know, they end up going over to, to to a small country somewhere, play okay basketball, but then have have kind of a midlife or a breakdown or hate basketball, and it's the unfortunate reality of our business, right? Yeah, it is. And and look, it's not for everybody, and it's a talent league. 
but you need to be mentally strong. You need to be your best fan, like you said. You need to be confident in what you do because confidence, especially trying to come in from the outside, not a top three pick, not a lottery pick, but like when you're a second round pick, undrafted, playing overseas to try to get better, you need confidence in yourself and you need to like, this is going to be a long journey. You know, Ryan Brokoff is, you know, Brokoff is another, it was a great example of somebody who keeps grinding it out, made, you know, played overseas, played in college, played overseas, made the NBA, trying to get back to the NBA, but he figured it out. Like anybody who's telling him he's too good for this, too good for that. He's, you know, he obviously doesn't listen. He knows what needs to be done. He knows that what he can and can't do on the floor. And I think that's the most important thing as a player, knowing what you can't do and the one thing that you can do to get on the floor. And I think that if they if they have that mindset, you're better off. But if you start listening to these people who are obviously just trying to get in your pockets, telling you you're the best ever, you're the best, you know, they're, they're all hating on you, you know, you're this, you're that, and you start listening to them and you stop doing the work and you stop preparing and you stop being invested in your craft, you're fucked. You, you got no chance. Yeah, I would agree. All right, that wraps it up, man. A big one. Thanks for your time again. And we'll uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us, all the listeners out there, Rogue Bogues on all the social media platforms. Hoop Consultants, right, bro? That's your that's your channel. If they want to get some some more basketball. Yeah. I got fucked. I got purged by eight viewers yesterday, last night. So you know, hopefully, hopefully, my twenty-seven people that still follow me are still is still tuned in. Twenty-seven. You've checked your account. You got eight, nine thousand. No, you got fifteen thousand followers on Twitter, man. Stop, stop trying to be humble. Yeah, but only seventy-two of them have a pulse. Thank God for Indonesia and being able to buy those guys. Or all the people that work at McDonald's. Oh fuck yeah! Uh-huh. Around the over world. two billion. So, hey, <laughs> over two billion. First of all, another rivalry. What you forgot from the Q and A that I really enjoy was Burger King versus McDonald's. Second <laughs> get, of all, if I ever business. stop, yeah, if if I ever stop going to McDonald's, that sign from two billion served goes to one billion served. So you know, thank God I'm still on the payroll. All right, bro. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Anytime, brother.